Hey, so it occurs to me that you may have done this when you were greeting one another a moment ago, but I want you to do it now in case you didn't. Look to the person sitting next to you and give them the official Christmas season beginning uh, greeting. Tell them Merry Christmas. Maybe you haven't said that to anybody yet. Merry Christmas. Tell them. Tell somebody. Merry Christmas. Merry Christmas. That's your official beginning. It is now Christmas season at Brookstone. Can I confess that, uh, that I get it, that Christmas for all of us can be wonderful and, as the old song says, the most wonderful time of the year, but it can also be not that, right? It can also be a difficult time of year, even a really, really lonely time of the year. All of us come at the Christmas celebration with different perspectives. We all approach it a little bit differently. And our perspective of Christmas is influenced by a number of things. First of all, it's informed by the scriptures. I would hope that most of us in the room today, I hope all of us in the room today, are believers in Jesus. And so we know that at Christmas... We're celebrating not just family and gift giving and, and, uh, and meals together and Santa Claus. No, it's so much more than all of that. If you believe the Bible, you know that at Christmas we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. Amen? We're celebrating the greatest event in the history of the world, the incarnation of God. When the Bible says that God robed himself in flesh and became a man. And so you, you come to Christmas as a believer with that as the driving focus of what it is that we're celebrating. But we also know that Christmas is shaped by our life experience. You know, kind of how things in our lives have been and maybe how things in our lives are now. The, the circumstances of our lives, they, they shape our perspective. For instance, if you have little kids at home, that's a whole different perspective of Christmas because of their excitement. I'll tell you the truth. My kids are all grown now. I kind of miss that. I mean, we get it some with our grandkids, but, but it's different. I miss having little kids at home on Christmas, Christmas morning and running down the hall. That is a way that, it, that our perspective is shaped. Maybe it's the opposite of that. Maybe there's some people missing around your table on Christmas. And for some of you, I'm certain this is the case, that this Christmas will be your very first Christmas without, you know, you would fill in the blank, this person that you love, and they're not here any longer. And so that affects the way that you approach and view Christmas, your perspective. And Christmas is informed and shaped by our relationships. A lot of our Christmas perspective is influenced by how our relationships are going. Here's what I mean by that. If you have really great and healthy family relationships and you're going to be together with your family, well, that's wonderful, right? And it's fun. But maybe not. <laughs> because maybe some of those relationships aren't so great and so you're going to get together but it's just going to be a little awkward and that's kind of the way it is. I'm simply making the point that all of us come to Christmas with these things that influence our, our perspectives of Christmas. Now, that's a human condition. That's not a 21st century reality. It's always been the case. In fact, it would have been the case 2,000 years ago, wouldn't it? I want to direct your attention to verse number 18, Matthew chapter 1 and verse number 18. And notice what Matthew does. He's going to talk about the birth of Jesus. He's going to talk about Christmas. 
And so it's almost as if he, at the very beginning of his, of his gospel, he kind of squares his shoulders. He's going to begin at the beginning, and he says, now the birth of Jesus was like this. And he begins to, he begins to unfold what the events surrounding the birth of Jesus were, li- uh, were like. And all of the events, the description that follows verse number 18, included different people who had different perspectives on what they were seeing happen. I mean, think about it. Think about the perspective of the shepherds. So when the shepherds came to see the infant Jesus in the stable cave lying in a manger, Luke chapter 2 tells us, they came with wide-eyed wonder. Because they had just been out in the field keeping their flocks, keeping watch over their flocks by night, as Luke 2 says. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them and the heavenly host came, illuminated the sky. They came to Bethlehem with this, wow, this wonder of the Christ has been born. That was their perspective, just awe and wonder. But then contrast that maybe with the experience of Simeon and Anna just a few days later in the temple when Mary and Joseph brought the baby Jesus into the temple to dedicate him to the Lord. And Simeon and Anna were both elderly, faithful uh, people and they saw the Christ child and and their response was not awe and wonder as much as it was kind of resolute praise. It it was almost, well, it wasn't almost, it was actually like Simeon said, okay, I can die now. I can die in peace now because my eyes have seen the Messiah. So there was a maturity about their response, which was a little different than the shepherd's response, I think. Awe and wonder or praise and adoration. You can think about the wise men. They came a little later and they they had a different perspective as they came bearing their gifts. What about King Herod, right? King Herod had a perspective of the birth of Jesus and it wasn't praise or worship or wonder. It was that he felt threatened And so when he heard that the king of the Jews had been born, you know what Herod did. He got angry and he became manipulative and conniving and and scheming. And he slaughtered the innocents of Bethlehem trying to snuff out this Christ child. They all all came to the same event, but they all came with different perspectives. Y'all following? You see what I'm trying to say? We all come with different perspectives. So here's what we're going to do today and next Sunday. We're going to talk about the perspectives of Christmas from the two people who were the most involved in it, Joseph and Mary. Next Sunday, we'll talk about Christmas from Mary's perspective, but today we're going to talk about Christmas from Joseph's perspective. Here's what I want you to do. This is what we're going to talk about, and it may surprise you, but I want you to write it down, and we're going to spend our time together talking about Joseph's perspective, answering this question, what do you do when your plans fall apart? That was Joseph's circumstance. What do you do when your plans fall apart? Or what do you do when life disappoints you? We're going to learn some things today, I hope, from the experience of Joseph. Hey, let me begin with you way back in uh, chapter 1 at the very beginning in verse number 1. And I want you to notice the meticulous care that Matthew gives to detailing for us the historical family line, the genealogy of the man and the family of Joseph. 
You'll see it in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, where he begins his gospel by saying, this is the book, or the scroll, of the generations of Jesus Christ. Let me rephrase it. Put it in modern language. This is where Jesus came from. This is the family line of Jesus. That's what he's going to tell us. And he goes on in verse 1 to say, this is the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David. The son of Abraham, the son of David. And so what Matthew is going to do is that in his gospel, he is going to detail for us very meticulously this genealogy of Jesus because of the claim that he is about to make. And here's his claim. In all of the unfolding chapters of Matthew, he is going to make this one claim. Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. That's his point. And if he's going to make that claim, he must begin by establishing the royal line of Jesus' family. Jesus has to be in the right family in order to be the Messiah. And that's why he says in verse 1, he is Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. It's interesting when you go down through Matthew chapter number 1, he draws a straight line from Abraham to David. Look at verse number Verse number two, Matthew 1 and verse 2. Abraham begat Isaac, who begat Jacob, uh, who begat Judah and his brethren. Now, by the way, Matthew chapter 1 is, a, is an ancient version of Ancestry.com, if you're wondering, all right? That's what he's doing here. He's showing the family line. It's, we, we might call it ancient Ancestry.com. Abraham was first. He traces his line to David. Look at verse number six. And Jesse begat David the king. That matters because the Messiah has to be in the line of King David. And then if you go on down to verse number 16, he ties Abraham and David to the family of Joseph. And Jacob begat Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. Now watch, he doesn't say that Jesus is the son of Joseph, because he's not. He says that Joseph is in this line, and Joseph was married, was the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus. Therefore, in an earthly sense, his earthly family, Jesus, was in that lineage of King David. That's the point that he's making. You see, Matthew's message was to the Jewish people. He declares throughout his book, as I mentioned, that Jesus is the Messiah. He is the king of the Jews. And so it was vitally important for Matthew to show that Jesus descended from, in an earthly sense, from Abraham through King David. If y'all are tracking with me, shout amen. You understand? Now, here's the thing. Next week, when we talk about Mary, we'll be in the Gospel of Luke. And one of the things that we'll consider is the genealogy that Luke gives for the family of Jesus. And Luke traces the family of Jesus not on Joseph's side, but on Mary's side. And he doesn't go only back to Abraham. He goes all the way back to Adam in the Garden of Eden. I can't wait to go through that with you. It's an entirely different emphasis that Luke has. All right, but today we're not talking about Mary. We're talking 
about Joseph. Can I introduce you to Joseph? Because we don't know a lot about him, do we? So uh, I want to introduce him to you and tell you some things about him. Joseph, this is everybody. Everybody, this is Joseph, all right? Let me tell you a few things we know about him. Number one, write it down. We know from the text that Joseph was a just man. That's what verse 20 says. Joseph was a just man. It simply is to say, I'm sorry, it's verse 19. Joseph, uh, her husband, being a just man. means he was a law keeper. It means that Joseph wanted to obey the Lord. He wanted to do what God wanted him to do. And that's an important characteristic in someone's life. He was a just man. Secondly, the text tells us that Joseph was a loving man. Verse number 19 tells us uh, that he loved Mary and he didn't want to bring any harm to her. Thirdly, the text tells us that Joseph was a thoughtful man. Verse number 20, that he considered these things while he pondered or thought on these things. It's a sign of maturity and love, that Joseph was thoughtful in his responses to situations. By the way, have you ever been guilty in your life of overreacting to something? Anybody in the room ever overreacted? <laughs> one of my favorite lines in, uh, in one of my favorite movies of all time is this line. Steve Martin says, I come from a long line of overreactors. Sometimes I felt like maybe that was my problem as well, although I speak not of my mother who is in the room. Um, and so Joseph was not an overreactor. He was measured in his responses. He demonstrated love and maturity. He was a thoughtful guy. Number four, Joseph was a hard worker. He was a working man. Uh, the gospel, tells, gospel of Mark tells us in chapter six, th- uh, 3 that Joseph was a carpenter. And the Greek word that's translated carpenter is the word tekton. And tekton can mean a carpenter who works with wood. It more likely means a stonemason. And much of the, of the uh, construction in the Middle East in Joseph's day, and today even, is not made of wood. There are far more stones in Israel than there are timber. And so oftentimes a tecton was a, a stonemason. You can imagine Joseph chiseling away at a stone and moving heavy stones and pulling ropes with pulleys and, and uh, swinging stones into place. He was, a, he was maybe even a burly, a strong, working man. Now, gentlemen, I would suggest to you that this is, this is a life that all of us can emulate, can't we? This is the kind of guy I want to be. A guy who is a hardworking man providing for my family, but also someone who's not a player, someone who's serious about my walk with God, and I want to be righteous and just and do what God wants me to do, all the while loving my family and being kind and considerate. That's who Joseph was. I think it's a good example for all of us. Now, this is the guy that was engaged to be married to Mary. And make no mistake about it, when we find ourselves in verse uh, 18, 19, 20 of chapter 1, Joseph and Mary are not yet married. They're only engaged. But when I say they're only engaged... I should in no way imply that the engagement was not very serious. Let me give you a little bit of background about ancient traditions and customs of marriage 
in the Middle East. Many of these customs, by the way, still uh, are, are true today. In the first place, here's what you should know, that in the days of Mary and Joseph, almost every marriage, in fact, I wouldn't be far off to say every marriage that took place in those days, in that culture, were arranged marriages. Here's what that means. It wasn't boy meets girl like it is now. You know, they, they met somewhere on, on ancient.com you know, dating websites. No, marriage in those days were really, as it is today, but in a much deeper way in that, in that culture, the union of two families. And so when a couple would be engaged, it wasn't just, you know, he, he plans to give her a ring and they're going to get married and then they'll tear, or engaged and they'll tear their family. No, the families come together. And the, and the family of the groom comes to the family of the bride. The father of the groom comes to the father of the bride. And the entire family gathers and they have a celebration at which the family of the groom asks for the hand of the bride from the family of the bride so that she might come and join their family in marriage. It's a big deal. Even until today, it is a huge celebration and ceremony. The groom's family would come with a a reverse dowry, if I could say it that way. It's a bride price. And so they would come with a certain amount of money or flocks or herds or possessions. And they would, they would give or pay to the family of the bride this bride price in order uh, to ask for her hand in marriage. And when all of that was agreed upon, not because the couple was necessarily in love, although they, they may have been or certainly many of them ultimately would fall in love, but, th- but this engagement would happen. Now, you should know that the engagement of a, of a couple was as binding, if y'all are listening, shout amen, was as binding as the marriage union itself. They were, for all intents and purposes, they were married. The only difference is they didn't live together. They certainly had no physical intimacy. They didn't consummate that union until after their wedding, verse number 18, makes that very clear. But they did not consummate the wedding, but they were in every way other than their residence and other than their intimacy, they were fully committed to one another. Once the engagement happened, the husband would go away to his father's house and he would prepare the home where he and his bride would live together as husband and wife. And when that home was completed, he would then leave and come with his family and friends, come and get his bride and take her home and the wedding would happen and they would be married. Think John 14. Remember John 14? On the night that Jesus is going to be arrested and die the next morning, he gathers with his disciples and he says to them, in my father's house are many rooms, many mansions. And if it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you And if I go and prepare a place for you in my father's house, it means you're my bride, so I'm going to come back and get you and take you to my father's house with me so that we might be together as bride and groom throughout all eternity. In John 14, Jesus is using the image of an ancient wedding. This this still happens today. Uh, Tracy and I were in Israel just a few weeks ago, as many of you know, and we were in Nazareth one evening for dinner, Cana, just outside of Nazareth, uh, for dinner with some dear friends. And they gathered, we gathered there with our friends and uh, all of their children, which included their oldest son and his new wife. They got married back in the summer. 
And so we had dinner together in the fathers, the, the, our friends, the, mo- the mom and the dad, in their home. Well, above their home, there are two more floors, and their son, when he got engaged to his bride, he went above his father's home in an apartment right above him and began preparing it. And when it was ready, he went and got his bride and brought her home. And do you know what we did after we had dinner at mom and dad's house? We simply went up a flight of steps, and we had dessert in the son's house in one of the mansions or the rooms in that house. They still do it today. It's exactly what happened here. Mary and Joseph are engaged and, and Joseph is away preparing their home. And when it would have been ready, then he would have come and gotten married. Now, I'm taking a lot of time to explain this to you, but here's what I want you to know. That it was during that engagement period, before they were married, but when they were engaged, that Mary conceives the Christ child. Luke tells us that after she conceives, the Holy Spirit comes upon her and the glory of the Lord uh, covers her. She conceives the Christ child. Luke says she immediately leaves and goes up to Judea to the home of her cousin Elizabeth where she spends three months. At the end of three months, first trimester's over, she's gonna begin showing any moment. She comes back down to Nazareth And I'm assuming, the Bible doesn't tell us for sure, but it would have been then, I think, that she would have told Joseph. Can you imagine? Joseph, I have news for you. (laughs) Sit down. And she tells him she's carrying the Messiah. Let's read it. Chapter 1, verse 18. Now, the birth of Jesus was like this. It was on this wise. When as his mother Mary was engaged or espoused to Joseph, before they came together, before there was intimacy in their relationship, she was found with child. It was discovered that she was going to have a baby. Now, Matthew is quick to tell us that this baby was conceived by the Holy Ghost. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man and not willing to make her a public example, was minded planning to put her away quietly or privately. Now, verse number 19 makes it clear that this engagement relationship is as binding as a marriage. He's called her husband, even though they haven't actually been wed yet. And you'll also see that he's going to have to go through a formal divorce if he's going to break the relationship, even though they haven't been married yet. Verse number 20, but while he thought on these things, behold, The angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto thee Mary thy wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she shall bring forth a son, and thou shalt call his name Jesus, for he shall save his people from their sins. Now all of this was done that it might be fulfilled which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, Behold, a virgin shall be with child and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which is being interpreted God with us. That's Isaiah 7, 14. Then Joseph, being raised from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him and took unto him his wife. The wedding now happens. Verse number 25, and he knew her not, that is, they did not consummate the marriage until after she had brought forth her firstborn son and he uh, called his name Jesus. 
I think there are a couple of things that we ought to think about in terms of Joseph and his perspective and how he's viewing all of these events uh, in the first place. One is simply to say this, that we ought to recognize Joseph's doubts in this situation. Uh, Mary tells him that she's going to have a baby. You can imagine this conversation. Joseph, I need to tell you I'm, I'm pregnant. I'm going to have a baby. But listen, Joseph, I, I have not been unfaithful to you. I promise you I've been pure. I, I have not violated our, our covenant together. I, I, I haven't been immoral. Joseph, here's what's happened. I got a visit from Gabriel, the angel of the Lord, and he explained to me that the Messiah is coming and I'm the one chosen that is going to deliver this Christ child into the world. And this angel has been, has been conceived by the Holy Spirit, or this child has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph did not say, well, wonderful, praise the Lord. Let's send out birth announcements. He wasn't believing it for a second. Now, I'm convinced he wanted to. He loved the Lord. He knew of the promise of the Messiah, that the, the Messiah would come one day. He knew, Isaiah seven fourteen that a virgin would conceive... I'm sure he wanted to believe her, but maybe it was just too incredible for him to believe. It's clear in the text that he doesn't because he's going to put her away. He's calling the whole thing off because he's doubtful that what she is telling him is true. The second thing I think is important for us to mention is not just that he was doubting her story, but secondly, his personal disappointment. Joseph's disappointment, now he was disappointed in Mary, to be sure. He thought, assumed, figured she must have been unfaithful, immoral. But he's disappointed in what's happened, not just in her. But imagine how he must have been crushed by this news. Joseph had dreams, right? He had had dreams of what their life was together would be like. It had been so beautiful, their, their marriage being planned and their engagement and their families coming together. He's working hard to get ready for their home where they're going to live together. And now she comes in and says, let me tell you what's happening. And in that moment, all of those dreams crumbled, loved ones. They all crumbled to the ground. It was like when, when Joseph heard the news of Mary's pregnancy, it was like somebody took a big eraser and just erased the dreams that he had about their relationship. Here's what I know. Every person in this room has had that happen in your life. Where you've got dreams and thoughts and plans and we're going in this direction and all is going to be what we want it to be and we're moving through this, this life and we've got it all figured out and it's all happy. And then something happens. Some news comes. Some event occurs. And it's like somebody just starts erasing those dreams. A spouse walks out the door. It's like a big eraser. You get the call and someone that you love has died suddenly. And suddenly, everything in life is different. All of your hopes and dreams start to crumble. A a, a career ends that you've worked hard to build and a path that you've planned and suddenly that ends. You've wanted a child and you conceive and you get a few weeks in and you miscarry. I don't know, a thousand other situations, but here's the reality that 
all of us have experienced the eraser of circumstance causing our plans to just fall apart and for life to disappoint us. So here's a question. What do you do? What do you do when plans fall apart? What do you do when life disappoints? Well, let me, let me tell you what we shouldn't do. Can we begin there? Can we start with what very often people do when life falls apart, but we shouldn't do? Let me suggest a couple things. Number one, sometimes people respond in anger. And what I mean is angry at God. So, so this thing happens, this death happens, this whatever circumstance arises, and people say, if, well, if that's the way God is, I just won't serve him. I'll, I won't trust him. And they begin to get angry at God as if God were mean and abusing them in some way. It's not a good response. Number two, sometimes people slip into depression. And so you just kind of crawl into this hole and you don't want to get out of bed and you don't want to face the world and, and, and you've, you begin to sink lower and lower into depression. Number three, sometimes people, when plans fall apart or life disappoints, people are consumed with fear. We freeze up. We're afraid to love again. We're afraid to trust again. We're afraid to make a decision because if I, I made that decision, that didn't work out. If I make that decision, then it's going to be bad. And we just lock down. We, we freeze up in fear. Number four, sometimes people take revenge. I call it revenge sinning. <laughs> Somebody sins against you, you sin against them. You hurt me, I'll hurt you. It's, it's an unhealthy, unhealthy, godly response. But all of these are common ways in which people respond when our circumstances disappoint. And here's the thing, Joseph responded differently than that. And Joseph's response is instructive to us. Joseph heard the Lord speak. These are the things that he heard the Lord say and he responded appropriately. So let me give them to you quickly in the last few minutes. If y'all are doing okay, shout amen. I'm almost done. What should you do when life disappoints? Hear the word of the Lord say this to you. Write it down. Trust me. Trust me. Here's what I love. Joseph is crushed. He's brokenhearted. His, all of his dreams have been wiped away. He, he thinks his, total, his whole life path is going to be different now than what he had thought it would be. His heart is broken. And the angel shows up that night in his room. And the first words out of the angel's mouth in verse number 20 are these. Fear not. Let me translate it. Trust me, Joseph. Trust me. Here's what I love. He goes on in verse number 20 to say, don't fear, Joseph. Trust me. Here's what I want you to know. That baby that Mary is carrying, it has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. Don't you know Joseph went, woo! Yeah! I mean, I... I wanted to believe it, but I couldn't believe it. Now I do believe it. I'm so excited. Everything changed. Here's why. Because Joseph knew that God knew what he was going through. Joseph knew that God knew his circumstance. You may not get as quick of an explanation as Joseph got, but here's what I want you to know, that when life falls apart and your plans disappoint and circumstances go away you didn't think they would go, know this, that God knows exactly what's happening. And you can trust him. Proverbs chapter 3 and verse number 5 says it this way. Trust in the Lord 
with all your heart. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not unto your own understanding. The word trust in Proverbs means to hide in. It's to rest in. It's like, a, it's like a child who's afraid or hurting or brokenhearted or wounded and that runs to his dad or his mom and they just envelop the child. And you almost can't even see the kid because they're just enveloped in the, in the embrace of that parent. That's what Proverbs 3 says. You're not always going to understand life. You're not always going to be able to figure it out. Sometimes it's going to be like Joseph. It's just going to go totally away you didn't think. But if you will trust in the Father and run to him, you will be secure in him. In fact, it's interesting, the word trust in Proverbs can also mean to hide in. And for some of you who remember hymnal world, you'll remember that old hymn that says, Rock of Ages, cleft for me, let me hide myself in thee. When your plans fall apart and when life disappoints, Trust him. Number two, when your plans fall apart or life disappoints, keep your promises. This is important. You keep your promises. This is the instruction in verse number 20 that the angel gave to Joseph. Fear not. Take unto thee Mary, your wife. Joseph, don't be afraid. You do what you've promised that you would do. You see, sometimes when life disappoints and circumstances go away that we didn't expect they would go, suddenly we think all bets are off. Suddenly we begin to, to live in such a way that, that we think, well, I can do things differently now, particularly if it's a person that's sinned against you. Suddenly I don't, I don't have to honor anything about what I've said to that person. Now here's what God says. You keep your promises. No matter what anybody else does, you keep your promises. You do what you're supposed to do. Sometimes we lack clarity. When plans disappoint, when life falls apart, we lack clarity. It gets fuzzy. Like Joseph, we don't know what's really true, what's not. We don't know what to do. Here's what he says. You just do the next right thing. You just take that next step. You may not have all the clarity of what it's going to be like, how it's going to work out, but you just do the next thing. Keep your word. Be who you've said you are. Do what you've said you would do. And even if it doesn't make sense in the moment because the circumstances have changed and life is now foggy and uncertain and painful, you do the next thing. Thirdly and finally, when life disappoints, we should hear God's command and we should do this. He says to us, obey my voice. Obey my voice. Verses 24 and 25, the angel had instructed Joseph to keep his promises, to take Mary to be his wife. And verse 24 says that Joseph, being raised from, the, from sleep, did as the angel of the Lord had bidden him, and he took unto him uh, his wife. And he knew her not until she brought forth her firstborn son. Which, by the way, is, is an interesting measure on Joseph's part. Even though they are now married, they don't consummate the marriage until Jesus is delivered. Why? To guard any question of paternity of that baby in her womb. That is not Joseph's son. There is no chance that will be Joseph's son. Because he knew her not until after Jesus was born. When life disappoints... 
when circumstances change, when, when you're hurt and grieving. My encouragement to you, my encouragement to me, is that we trust in the Lord, we keep our word, we obey his voice. And here's what will happen if we'll do that. He will be faithful to keep his word to us. Amen? Like we sang earlier, he will be faithful to keep his word to us. And it goes on in this passage to say, um, the angel says to Joseph, look, you do this because all of this is happening so that I can keep my word. Isaiah 7, 14, a virgin will conceive and have a, have a son. I'm keeping my word, Joseph. So you keep your word. And when we do that, then God will be faithful to meet us there. If I could put all of these instructions into a sentence, I would say when life disappoints, run to the Father. Trust him. Walk the way he wants you to walk. Be with him. Lean into him. Run to the Father. In fact, in just a minute, Jonathan's going to come out with his team, and we're going we're to close by singing this song. I want to run to the Father. And I'm going to invite you. Maybe what needs to happen in your life today is that you just need to run to this altar and just say, Lord, I didn't see life going this way. And I can't imagine, would have never dreamed that it would be like this. And God, you know that what's happened is like this eraser. It's erasing the dreams out of my life. But I'm going to trust you. I'm going to run to you. I'm going to do what you want me to do. And I know you will work all things for your glory and my good. Amen? So the Bible doesn't tell us about Joseph's death. But here's what we think. We think he died uh, at some point while Jesus was still living at home before he began his earthly ministry. Joseph is nowhere mentioned in the ministry of Jesus. After, Je after Jesus is 12 years old, that's the last time you see Joseph. So he must have gone on to heaven at some point prior to that. But I believe one day we'll get to heaven and I will get to shake the hand of a man who was a hardworking, loving, kind, mature servant of God whom the Lord used out of his own brokenness to do the right things for the glory of God. I'm gonna shake his hand because I wanna be that guy. I wanna be like him when I grow up. And I hope you do too.